everybody. This is Chris. And Kathy. We wanted to take a minute to thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate every listener and are grateful for this platform. Please help us share our vision by subscribing to our show through your favorite streaming app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. Check out our ever-growing list of affiliates and sponsors. Simply go to the show notes for information and links. And be sure to use our promo code PETPOD22, that's P-E-T-P-O-D-2-2, on checkout to receive your discount from our affiliates. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Alon Landa, CEO of MedcoVet, and I'm a proud sponsor of Petability. We decided to partner with Chris and Kathy because, like them, we want to empower all pet owners who are trying to do the most for their pets. At MedcoVet, we specialize in advanced home laser therapy for pets. Laser therapy is a safe and effective treatment for common conditions like arthritis and wounds, and it relieves pain for most conditions caused by inflammation. With MedcoVet, pet owners can perform this treatment at home while receiving support from experienced clinicians. If you think your pet would benefit from healing at home, visit MedcoVet.com, and one of our clinical experts will work with you to determine if home laser therapy is the right fit for you and your pet. Tell them PetAbility sent you. Welcome to PetAbility. I'm your host, Kathy Simons. And I'm your host, Chris Cranston. Our podcast provides interviews and information to help your pets live their best lives. Good morning, Kathy. How are you this fine day? Good morning, Chris. I'm doing well. How are you? Splendid, splendid. We dodged (laughs) another uh, snowstorm here in New England, and uh, that uh, makes me super excited that the snow is shoveled and we have a wonderful guest with us today. Oh, I know. I'm really excited about this. Um, I have have so many questions, and um, you know, we're, we're going to be talking today with uh, with Dr. Riggs about cognitive dysfunction. And, you know, my very first dog, I had my my first pug, Buddha, uh, started having cognitive decline probably around the age of 12. And so I'm really interested to hear what Dr. Riggs has to say about what's what these dogs are experiencing. Me too. Me too. And as I was preparing for this uh, chat, I was thinking, you know, over the years, I've been doing this for almost 20 years as a, as a canine rehabber. And I remember early in the in my career, you know, it was like, what? Dogs can, can get dementia? What 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 are you talking right. about? Right. And now I many owners, like I just talked to one a day or two ago and she said, I think my dog has dementia. Mm. So we've kind of, you know, spanned, I guess, that that thought process and research and it's becoming more um owners are becoming more aware and and we're hoping to get some good information out there, dispel some of the myths. And yeah. And I always think that uh information and education really empowers us as pet owners to uh be better equipped to care for our our furry loved ones. Right. So I will introduce the esteemed Dr. Bronwyn Riggs. She is originally from the South Shore of Massachusetts and received her undergraduate degree in biochemistry from Smith College, smarty pants, uh, before Mm -hmm. pursuing her veterinary degree at the University of Pennsylvania. After graduating in 2010, Dr. Riggs completed a rotating internship followed by a three-year residency in neurology and neurosurgery at the Animal Medical Center in New York City. 
Dr. Riggs became board certified in 2015. I just want to take a little brief moment here to say that those credentials are astounding. And our listeners know that I, I am a fan of, of the Animal Planet uh, show, you know, broadcasts. And they're always at the Animal Medical Center in New York City because lot, lots happens there. So that's really cool. Dr. Riggs takes pride in being a conservative surgeon who performs surgery aggressively when needed, when it's indicated. But her primary interests are in diagnostic MRIs and finding non-surgical options for complex neurological diseases. Dr. Riggs also enjoys performing advanced neurosurgical procedures. And again, I always tell my clients that a good surgeon is one that doesn't just automatically say your pet needs to go under the knife. So I really, really appreciate exploring more conservative non-surgical options when they're available. So welcome, Dr. Riggs. Welcome, Dr. Riggs. Thank you for having me. I'm pretty excited about this topic for a couple of reasons, but almost first and foremost is that this was a, a topic that I explored during my residency when I was at the Animal Medical Center. So it's always good to sort of continue this discussion um, so that you know we're, we're bringing more information to not only veterinarians but also to the you know people and more uh, important people in our lives that are taking care of our pets. Mm -hmm. Dr. Riggs, I'm just I'm going to jump right in here and ask if you can can you define cognitive dysfunction for our audience? You know, we've heard this term, right? Um, and, but but what what I'd like to know is, can you tell us not only what is cognitive dysfunction, but what are these animals experiencing? Right? What is happening to the brain? Absolutely. And so I think even before we talk about cognitive dysfunction, that we can back up a little bit further and just sort of recognize that, you know, with advances in veterinary medicine, we're more and more commonly seeing our pets living to a greater age than has been seen historically. And so with a longer lifespan, we see age-related degenerative changes in a number of organ systems. And that's going to include our heart, our vascular system, our musculoskeletal system, um, our endocrine systems. And so with all species, the brain also undergoes degenerative changes with age. And this is going to result in an impairment of memory and learning. Now, what we know with cognitive dysfunction in our pets is mainly through the study of dogs and to a lesser de uh, degree cats. So I apologize if I'm mainly referring to dogs, but it's just that the bulk of what we know um, sort of focuses or is really sort of geared around um, sort of the study of dogs. So when we talk about the definition of canine cognitive dysfunction syndrome, we see it as a progressive neurodegenerative disorder of senior dogs that is characterized by a gradual decline in cognitive function. And that's going to be as it pertains to things like learning, memory, perception, and general awareness. And this usually occurs over a, a prolonged period of time. So um, like 18 to 24 months or even potentially longer. So it seems like we've established that dogs in particular, but most likely it can be extrapolated to, to many species, get cognitive dysfunction. And just for our knowledge, is the term cognitive dysfunction the same as dementia or like in people, you know, everything gets thrown into this lump of Alzheimer's disease. 
That's that's a great question. And the, the short answer is yes. However, the more interesting answer sort of involves discussing some of the neurobiology behind brain degeneration. So all species are susceptible to neurodegeneration as we age. And this is true across all organ systems, but due to the high metabolic needs of the brain, this degenerative process can be more rapid. So if you remember from your, your seventh grade um, biology class, mitochondria or the, the powerhouse organelles of the cell, they create ATP through aerobic respiration and a byproduct from making ATP occurs through the breakdown of oxygen into reactive oxygen species. Now, normally the body has defenses against these toxic byproducts in the form of natural antioxidants. However, if balance of detoxification and production is tipped in favor of overproduction, as can occur with aging, the excess of these free radicals can react with really important structures within our cells, such as DNA, lipids, and proteins. And this can lead to cell damage, dysfunction, mutations, cancers, and even cell death. And so what makes one individual more susceptible to this form of aging over another individual can be multifactorial. So um, things like genetics, diet, environmental factors, lifestyle, um, and metabolic diseases, all these things can play a role in how the brain ages. Now, the hot topic is, you know, how how is cognitive dysfunction as we see in dogs cannot be related to Alzheimer's disease. So to get into that, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Alzheimer's disease and um, sort of what we, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to do it on a basic level just because again, I'm not a human physician. Um, however, we'll I'll then sort of relate it to what we can what we know in dogs. So Alzheimer's disease is a condition in humans that is recognized through two hallmark pathologies within the brain. So you can have something called beta amyloid plaques and something called neurofibrillary tangles. And these substances are neurotoxic, so they can lead to neuron dysfunction or cell loss and depletion of neurotransmitters, which are the really important substances that tell the cells how to communicate or they allow the cells to communicate with each other. So this leads to progressive loss of memory, confusion, disorientation, and difficulties managing one's environment. And in later stages, coordinated muscle movements and appetite can also be affected. Now, in dogs, beta amyloid proteins have been recognized within the brain. Now, in people, these usually form as dense plaques, um, which can um, then lead to what we associate with uh, Alzheimer's disease in people. These dense plaques that occur in people are not seen in dogs, but the presence of these proteins is still correlated with severity of clinical signs. It's just not as definitive as a, causat uh, as a causative agent for a decline. Now, neurofibrillary tangles, which again is seen in people, are not consistently seen in dog brains. So although there are some similarities in some of the pathologies seen in humans with Alzheimer's disease, it does not translate directly to what we know in dogs. For this reason, we stick with the term canine cognitive dysfunction syndrome, as opposed to saying that they have Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. disease. Dr. Briggs, I wanted to touch on something that, that sparked my interest when you were 
talking earlier about um, our pets and how they're how they're living um, much longer. And um, I, I agree. You know, I started, uh, you know, my technician career probably back. I, I don't want to date myself too much, but in the mid 80s. Right. You know, and if we saw dogs that were living, you know, eight or nine years, uh, 10 years, even we thought that those were you know really good numbers. And now I'm seeing dogs that are living you know, into their teens and, and occasionally, very rarely, but occasionally I'll see a dog that makes it, you know, to 20, some of these small dogs, right? right. And so what, what I'm wondering is, you know, how do we recognize this as a cognitive decline? So as I'm getting a dog that's 12 or 13 or 14 years old, maybe they're starting to have some type of sensory impairment, right? Maybe they're losing their vision, maybe they're losing their hearing. How am I going to, how do we determine, or what's the diagnostic criteria for saying our dogs are truly in uh, cognitive decline? So that's a really great question. And a lot of times we need to rule out a lot of medical conditions that could be causing some of the clinical signs that we associate with cognitive dysfunction to make sure that there isn't an underlying meta, um, medical problem that is causing those sorts of clinical signs. So it's always the first you know, sort of rule of you know, when you have a dog coming into the office that is showing potential signs of this to make sure that they aren't sick for another reason. And this is how the, the behaviors are manifested. So you mentioned the plaques in people and not so definitive in, in dogs uh, or animals. Is MRI a, a diagnostic for this? And can pets get early onset as an outlier? Absolutely. Like people and can. So doing a number of tests can really help to screen for a potential cause for some of the things that we associate with cognitive dysfunction. So doing general lab work to check out your pet's overall systemic health is very important in that. Doing things like checking blood pressure, like what you would do, um, you know, if you go to, you know, your doctor to check your overall health can also be important information in sort of the, the puzzle that is your pet. And then finally, when we're evaluating the brain, we have more specific tests like MRIs to look at the structure, the architecture of the brain so that we can help to rule in and out a lot of different conditions because things associated with cognitive dysfunction like disorientation, confusion, changes in behavior, that can arise from a number of diseases, both within the brain as well as outside of the brain. So the MRI or doing that systemic workup, and then eventually an MRI can really help to, to look um, for, for each of these different conditions. So um, doing the MRI allows us to look at the structure of the brain to see, do we see anything that could be consistent with, say, a brain tumor or that my pet sustained a stroke or vascular event, looking for evidence of inflammation or infections. And in the absence of some of these things, um, we start leaning more towards the diagnosis of cognitive dysfunction. Now, there are some age-related changes that we can see affect the brain that show up on MRI. Um, and so that can also help to support, um, you know, that diagnosis. We had talked, uh, you had talked about the, we had covered the possibility of other things being um, the cause of some of this, what appears to be in a cognitive decline. But you had also mentioned that one of the factors in um, 
cognitive dysfunction or one of the things that we should consider is, is, um, is the lifestyle of the dog. Is there any particular thing that, that you can think of that would make maybe one dog who's maybe is a dog that's sedentary and obese? Is that the particular lifestyle of a dog that may make them more at risk for cognitive decline than, you know, your border collie who's running after sheep all day, you know? I, th- I think this is a really interesting thing to think about, uh, mainly because it, it's also a hot topic uh, in the human community. Um, so, you know, we there's a lot there are a lot of studies out there that discuss the advantages of exercise, both physical as well as mental, and how that really helps our overall cognitive function. I find it hard to believe that you couldn't apply those same principles to our pets. Now, it's harder to follow that within within animals, mainly because the studies that are done in people are done within a laboratory to a certain degree, a, a much more structured setting. Whereas within our pets, there's so many variables that come into play. Uh, however, I, I'd like to believe that the animals that are you know, undergoing a you know, exercise and have a lot more stimulating environments are more likely to maintain that, that level of function as opposed to those who, who have a more sedentary um, existence. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the studies for that just, just don't exist. So we, don't, we just we don't have that data, but something yeah. to certainly explore in the future. And, and I guess we go back to, you know, also everybody's an individual and genetics are going to play. You can't necessarily, you know, roll that out. The guy who goes running every day could still get, you know, could still get sick. Right. Um, You know, one of my, when I, in my early, early, early years as a rehabber, um, I had a woman come to me with her 17 year old. uh, I don't, she was like, she had, she's small. So like a Yorkie, like a Yorkie poodle mix. Right. Mm -hmm. And nobody, nobody wanted to touch the dog because they were like, Oh my God, she's 17. I was like, no, I want to work with this dog. And the owner came in and said, I want to focus not necessarily on my dog's um, fitness because she was pretty fit and in trim and she was doing pretty well and going on her walks, but her, her owner called brain fog. Right. And uh, I was like, I I don't, I don't even, first of all, I don't even know what that term means. And I don't know that I can treat that. But um, what I did was I came up with a series of regular routine exercises and brain games. So problem solving right throughout the day, uh, games, toys, uh, things that she had to, you know, forage or the foraging box or her brain game toys and, and a, a set of routine exercises that would happen periodically throughout the day. And I can say anecdotally, that dog did really well. And she, she just about made it to her 20th birthday. Wow. Uh, and she just showed, she, I know, and she showed some decline in that last like three months. But I could say for that particular dog, I really felt like rehab or that physical activity and, and just getting her to problem solve. Plus she was a smart dog anyway, you know, little terriers, you know how smart they are, right? <laughs> you know, smart, they really, really smart. Uh, <laughs> really, smart. She was a little too smart, um, but it really did seem to, to help, you know, and of course that's just one patient, but that was an experience I had with that dog. Absolutely. We definitely see that enrichment that focuses on positive social interactions uh, can really benefit um, the pet, but also the, the the human pet bond. So, you know, doing, you know, like opportunities for exploration or interactive games, stimulating ways to, to obtain food or toys and treats, all those things can can really help to 
keep your pet going. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there are treats out there that, you know, have them sort of pushing or lifting or sort of, you know, batting at a toy or making it roll to release food. And these things can encourage the pet to be more active and alert or, you know, things that like scatter treats um, that's helping your pet to learn or even relearn to hunt, search and retrieve. And again, it's just keeping the pet more active that um, and, and stimulated that that only is going to benefit, um, you know, things and going yeah. forward. And it's so much fun for them. There's so many great, fun, simple things that we can do with our senior dogs. Right. There's just so many yeah. fun games. There are new games, toys, things that you can invent, you know, crawling under, walking over, you know, finding food. There's just so many great things. And I think that also the touching on the animal human bond is really important because that that's what it's all about. Right. And the animals getting special time with their owner. I think that probably exactly. is a factor, too. So. Yes. And, and even in, in doing these games, we're also helping to reinforce a, a normal sleep wake pattern, which is one of the things that can really be to the detriment, not only of the pet. Um, so, you know, as we age, it's really important that we sleep soundly. It's important throughout life, but especially true as we age. Um, but also that, that sleep disruption also affects the family, which is to impact that bond. Mm. So go, you know, having these interactive um, or, or sort of designated playtimes, uh, going on shorter, but maybe more frequent walks um, to help maintain mobility and stimulation through low impact ac- exercise. These mm. things are going to really establish a more normal sleep and wake pattern that are, you know, that's going to be more likely to be active during the day and then hopefully sleeping at night. Um, and, and along those lines, doing that final play session or a walk just before bedtime can really help to encourage, uh, encourage a better nighttime sleep. That's an excellent point. I didn't even really think about the sleep disruption, you know, and, um, you know, our dogs don't sleep like we do. They take the little short naps throughout the day and then they need to get that good sleep, that restorative mm-hmm. sleep at night. Makes right. me think I, of- I think an example of, of, that and it can creep up on people. I think that that is one of the tougher things with cognitive dysfunction is that the, these clinical signs can, or, you know, and, and people we call them symptoms. So in veterinary medicine, we call them clinical signs, but they can be much more subtle earlier on in, in cognitive dysfunction and then very gradually change over time. And as a result, people, if they're sort of gradually exposed to this, they don't really recognize, they don't always recognize the changes until they're much more advanced. And an example of this was when I was actually in veterinary school, my um, childhood dog, um, her name was Emma. Um, She's a Springer Spaniel and she's a wonderful, wonderful dog um, that, you know, fortunately was very, very healthy for most of her life. Um, But anyway, I, I wanted to going away to veterinary school and she stayed with my parents and I wound up coming back during, um, you know, uh, one of our breaks and I hadn't seen Emma in many months. And when I came home and was staying with my parents, um, I, I, you know, all of a sudden I heard, you know, this sort of commotion at night and it turned out it was Emma that was starting to vocalize. And, you know, I spoke to my parents, you know, about it in the morning and they, they just sort of shrugged it off. They're like, oh yeah, she, she's been talking at night. And I was like, okay, you know, you know, how long has this been going on for? Um, and it turns out that it just had sort of gradually been occurring and it didn't even 
it, it didn't even register on their radar that they were waking up at night to sort of check in on her and see what was having her agitated. And sometimes it was that, she, you know, sometimes it was that she, you know, needed a bathroom break, but other times she, she genuinely was just sort of confused and a bit disoriented and just needed help settling back down. And again, until I really pointed it out to my parents, they didn't even realize that there was a change in the normal pattern. Yeah. That had become their new normal. That exactly. They, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they, they just, you know, adapted to, to her needs. And, you know, I, I think that that happens with a lot of our really great pet owners is that, you know, they, they you know, just sort of like a, a toddler needs help with certain things. You know, the parents rise to the occasion. Well, as our pets get older, they almost revert back to um, sort of being puppies again in the sense of what their needs are. And it can be a very gradual process. And, and you know, a, people just sort of say, oh, well, my pet needs this. And so now I'm going to do this and, and don't really realize that there's been a, a change to, to the normal pattern. So Dr. Riggs, I've heard the term sundowner syndrome, you know, thrown about and that certainly occurs in people. And, you know, once again, I started as a physical therapist with people and, you know, in simple terms, uh, I would always think it, that these folks kind of mix up their day and night. And so they're awake during the night and asleep during the day. Is this insidious onset of, of some of the things you're describing, would, would you equate that to being like a sundowner syndrome? Yeah, so I, I do think that we can see that to a degree uh, in our pets. Uh, so it, it is a term that we'll sometimes adopt for, um, you name the species, but the, you know, there's this transition from daylight hours to evening where the individual becomes more agitated or restless or um, sort of confused and disoriented. And and that's what we're talking about with sundowner syndrome mm. or sundowning. And we definitely can see that with our pets. I generally find that it sort of continues on into the nighttime um, where, again, they tend to be more active at that time, confused, pacing, sort of repetitive behaviors, whereas during the day they were sleeping more soundly. Yep. Gotcha. So I want to maybe give our listeners some very concrete signs, behaviors that you've noted, you know, over time um, that they can maybe look for that may be indicative of cognitive decline. Um, I know for me, what, what some of my clients have described is, and I have dear friends who have, uh, I think he's, a 13-year-old um, mini schnauzer, and we were Zooming the other night, and they said, Chris, we want to ask you, you know, about this. You know, Rudy is, is he's, he's going to the wrong side of the door. You know, he's, he's gone out the door to go outside, you know, on the appropriate side every time, and now lately he just, he, he's going to the wrong side, and we have to kind of scoot him around the door to get him out. And the other thing that they mentioned was that, uh, he's he's not um, localizing, I guess, where they are. Like when when they call his name, he looks 180 degrees in the opposite direction and just stares. And I don't know, would those be some signs that that would be typical of of cognitive cognitive decline? Absolutely, yeah. So some of the things that we can see involve changes 
seen with just disorientation and confusion. So like getting lost on a walk, especially a walk that they typically take or have been taking for years or looking for the food bowl or water dish in an unusual place in the home. Um, I like the, the example of, you know, going to, you know, sort of the wrong end of the door to be let out or maybe going to the window instead of the door to be let out when there isn't a, a visual impairment that that's affecting them. Now, other times we can see changes in social relationships, such as losing recognition of people that they should know, like neighbors or even members of the household. And then, you know, we touched upon things like alterations and the sleep-wake cycle as being a big one where they sleep more during the day and then are pacing or restless at night. Um, things like loss of learning and memory, which oftentimes results in house soiling or loss of learned commands and trained tasks. And you can see these changes in activity, uh, such as wandering and repetitive movements or even decreased activity or responsiveness to, to normal stimuli. And then finally, the another big one is just an increase in overall anxiety or phobias. So maybe a dog that always was a little bit prone to being anxious, all these things, this is now much more heightened later on in life. What is the part about when you said may not recognize uh, a neighbor or a family member, how does that manifest? Like, do they, they bark at them? Do they cower? What, I mean, all of the above? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it, it it can manifest as vocalization, barking. Other times you can see aggression. And again, it, it, it may be someone that they should know that, you know, they spent a lot of time with in the past. Or, you know, it can be, you know, a dog that usually is well adjusted that, um, is, is used to being introduced to new people that all of a sudden has these, these new fears with, with, um, being introduced to new people or situations. And I think, again, getting this information out there will help to decrease some of the pet owners' anxiety around this. You know, so if they're, they're seeing some of these signs, you know, maybe it won't be quite so upsetting because they're understanding what's going on. And maybe they can um, help to, um, you know, allay those fears or that anxiety versus just being really upset. Like, you know, why, why did Fluffy bite me? She's never bitten me before, you know, that kind of thing. Um, right. Yeah. And I think an important part of that is also the importance of um, keeping, keeping um, their, their environment as consistent as possible. So, you know, maybe the, the puppy, the younger dog, the middle-aged dog that, you know, enjoyed going on car rides or having new experiences that may not still apply to the older pet who, you know, is now to having anxiety. So keeping the day-to-day pattern as consistent as possible is going to go a long ways towards, um, you know, having a more um, sort of um, day-to-day life experience. And I think it's important to perhaps clarify here that, yes, routines are are definitely beneficial for the reasons that, that you stated, you know, to decrease anxiety so they know what to expect and so forth. But that is not to say, as we talked about earlier, that introducing new things that are enriching, you know, whether it's DYI stuff or, you know, feeders and toys that you buy that can help stimulate them, that does not exclude that. So maybe an example would be, 
you know, uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon ish, I get out, you know, Moxie's toy ball and put some treats in it. And Moxie gets to play with that ball. So there's an enriching activity, but the routine is that it's roughly at the same time every day and so forth. Is that fair? That that's incredibly fair. And I think that the the big take home to this is you got to tailor it to your pet's needs. So if your pet really enjoys these sorts of play sessions that involve a certain thing like a ball or, you know, a, a treat dispensing toy, then fantastic. However, if that same toy now is causing anxieties, then it's probably not a good idea to continue play with that, but to find something else that maintains a calm environment that still is stimulating. Mm. Kathy and I always say, listen to your pet. And that's a perfect example. Yeah. And I think that, you know, from the owner's perspective for somebody, you know, I've been through it once with one of my dogs. I think that um, I wanted to point out that from my perspective, the way I felt was almost a little bit of a grieving process that my dog was having these, you know, this, this decline. And that it was a little bit sad that I saw that he didn't want to participate in some of the things that um, he used to love, right. He used to love swimming. And then at some point he was like, I can't get wet. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, for me, it was a little bit sad, but what I, what I did again, Chris, like we talked about and Dr. Riggs talked about was, you know, I made sure that we had a set of routine. We got up at the same time every day. He could count on going to the bathroom at the same time every day. I found something to do with him that he enjoyed. Um, and then we just had this new, you know, this new life, you know, this new, our new normal, our new lifestyle. Um, but, you know, are, are there can we talk about other things that might help treat or slow or maybe even possibly reverse some of this cognitive decline? Is there anything out there for us? Supplements, anything? Yeah, so I think that even just that are the broader topic of saying or asking, you know, is there a treatment for cognitive dysfunction? It's important to realize that there are no definitive treatments for reversing or curing a decline in cognitive function, but rather management of this condition is reliant on, you know, a multitude of things, including behavioral modification techniques, environmental enrichment, targeted nutrition and medications that may slow progression of disease and improve the quality of life of the pet and family. Um, and then, you know, ultimately it's also making sure that there aren't underlying medical problems that need to be addressed. So, you know, we've, we've talked a bit about mental stimulation, um, you know, going on walks, doing various toys to help. Um, but there are some other things that can help with anxiety. So there are um, actually anxiety wraps or thunder shirts. Um, that are available in the market. So just like swaddling a baby can provide a sense I love of security. That shirt. I love uh-huh. that shirt. I love yeah. that thing. <laughs> yeah. So the, these wraps can be helpful for some dogs that are experiencing phobias and agitation. So that's something that some people, again, if, if it's something that their pet enjoys, it can be very helpful. Obviously, if they, they don't want to be swaddled, then it could cause more harm than good. 
Now, um, there, there has been a fair amount of research that's gone into brain-specific diets uh, in the hopes of improving cognition or at least slowing down its decline. And these are typically geared towards supplementing antioxidants and other ingredients to enhance mitochondrial function. Um, other diets focus on metabolism through alternative energy sources like medium chain fatty acids, regardless of whether you choose a brain specific diet or not, just making sure that you have your pet on an age appropriate and well balanced diet is going to go a long ways towards um, ensuring your, your pet's overall health. Um, there are also like a lot of supplements available that can help on this subject. So S-adenosyl L-methionine um, or SAMe can help with mm. cell membrane fluidity and receptor function. Uh, there's also been, uh, there's a product um, that uses apicorin, um, that's a calcium buffering protein. It may have some neuroprotective qualities to it. Um, even things like ginkgo biloba, um, they also help with free radical scavenging. So again, we're really trying to, to help with um, sort of brain metabolism and some of those byproducts that can be damaging to the brain. Now, um, targeted therapies try to focus more on managing certain aspects of cognitive decline. So things like melatonin can help with regulating the sleep-wake cycle. Uh, things like selegiline or fluoxetine. So uh, Prozac can help with anxiety. And then I sometimes even use gabapentin um, to not only help as a bit of a sleep aid, um, but also if there's any underlying discomfort, as we can see uh, in our older pets from things like arthritis, it could potentially also help from that, that perspective as well. You know, I, I keep going back to my experiences with people. And ironically, I just spoke with my dad last night. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's uh, several years ago, but he just saw his neurologist and was just put on a medication to help with memory. And so how timely is right. <laughs> this chat? Yeah. I'll have him listen to the podcast. Maybe Please do. Yeah, see what he thinks. <laughs> Dr. Riggs, do you think that there are any, any great, uh, maybe adjuncts to traditional medicine that you might that you might consider for these pets with cognitive dysfunction and acupuncture, you know, something like that. So I, I think it's it's a great thing to think about, you know, always thinking outside the box. Don't, you know, just get pigeonholed into certain, you know, aspects of medicine, but sort of consider some of the alternative treatments out there. And, you know, I, do I know that acupuncture has directly, you know, helped with cognitive function? Not necessarily, but I, I think that acupuncture definitely has its place in medicine and certainly can help with a lot of painful disorders. And that those can cause uh, a, a you know, decline in the overall well-being of the individual. And so if you can help to improve one aspect of one's quality of life, I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't help in other aspects as well. I have a little anecdote uh, to share. Uh, just just recent, um, about two weeks ago, I was uh, referred a, a dog that was turning 15 on the day that she was coming in for her physical rehabilitation consultation. And the one thing that, well, I guess there were, there were two things that the owners said in their goals, but the first thing they said was 
to help her in terms of her mopiness and to make her excited about life and so forth. And then the other was to address any pain or discomfort that she may be having, um, you know, as she ages. And, you know, kind of to Kathy's point uh, with her story earlier, um, this dog was in fantastic physical shape. Yeah. And, I, and I hate to say for 15 years old, because she was in, is in great shape, even, you know, for a dog that might be eight or 10. And she has fan, wonderful owners that are very committed and so forth. But what came to light during the course of, of this consultation was that Lilu used to participate in agility. And the owner was just kicking herself because as I was describing some of the things that I wanted her to do with Lilu, she's like, oh, my gosh, she used to love that. Oh, we did that all the time. Oh, she knows how to do this. And I'm thinking of it more from a physical point of view, like maybe doing some figure eights and weaving to help to loosen her spine, which was just a little stiff and and so forth. But you know, the owner recognized that, you know, these are things she's like, she knows how to weave. She used to weave and, you know, rock that all the time. So fast forward two weeks and I just saw this dog on Sunday and the owner reported that there has been a 180 degree mind shift for Lilu. She is happy animated, interacting, and in the middle of her exercises, will take off and do zoomies because she is so excited to be doing and rather simple things. You know, I didn't, uh, you know, assign anything, you know, that was too difficult, you know, considering uh, her, her advanced age and so forth. But, uh, you know, sometimes I love working with the older pets because sometimes it's just a little shift in, in their lifestyle can make such a huge impact on, on how they're just doing both physically and mentally because you can't really separate the two. You know, I think that's one of the things I love and Kathy and I have talked about this is, is, you know, when you're doing physical exercise with the dog, you're also exercising their brain. Yeah. And I think the other thing that that comes with that is so you as a physical therapist is going through this but also the pet owner a lot of times are bringing these lessons home and working on their pet and in doing so it continues to strengthen that bond between the mm-hmm. pet and the owner and so there it's it's perceived both ways the pet is happy because it it sort of has purpose again it's doing the things it likes to do but the owner is also happy because it's interacting in a positive way with their pet and seeing their pet happy. So it's definitely a win-win. Absolutely. It's it's the best when you see an owner and a pet sort of uh, find a a commonality of joy, right? Yes. Um, That's, that's the best feeling when they find something that they both enjoy. And it was so obvious because the owner came back, you know, to this visit, just beaming as well. Mm -hmm. And there are two other dogs in the household. And I just think by default, this owner had, you know, she's taking her other dog to mobility class and, you know, doing different things, but just it, she just needed that reminder from me that Lilu is capable of doing this. And, you know, to both of your points, it just brought such joy to both of them. So win-win. That's great. Win-win. Definitely. <laughs> so Dr. Riggs, as we're uh, wrapping up our little chat today, I just want to touch base again on, is there a typical age of onset for, for these cognitive changes? And is it more common in certain 
breeds of dogs um, or, you know, or I know you said there's not a lot of research on other species, but, you know, maybe you can speak to, to breeds of dogs that it may be more prevalent in. Sure. So the, the medium lifespan of dogs varies as a function of breed with larger breeds typically having shorter lifespans than their smaller counterparts. So it is difficult to peg when exactly a dog becomes geriatric or of an age when cognitive dysfunction may be more prevalent. Now, that being said, cognitive dysfunction is reported to arise with increasing frequency between the age of uh, beginning at the age of 11 years of age. Um, However, evidence suggests that a decline in cognitive function may occur much earlier than typically reported in the clinic, likely because of limited diagnostic measures, uh, because it's such a subjective thing to, to identify. So these initial signs can be subtle and relatively innocuous, but may progress to a point where they have a significant impact on the pet's quality of life and the owner's ability to continue to care for the pet. Now, in the laboratory setting, um, cognitive dysfunction has been identified as early as 68 years of age. So what that tells us is that hopefully by being a bit more vigilant about what our pet is experiencing, hopefully by identifying maybe the earlier signs of it, we can then intervene much more quickly to hopefully help slow progression of disease um, as our pet gets older. You know what, I I, I would love to see it. And I think that that we're moving towards this. I would love to see more uh, veterinarians refer uh, their their senior patients to rehab uh, in general, maybe even just in this first signs of maybe cognitive decline, uh, because this is a time when owners can lean on their rehab team. Right? This is something that they can lean on their rehab team for. I would love that, too. I think it could go a long ways towards yeah. to really help deal with this this problem right. um, that, that, you know, it, to a degree is a little bit an- inevitable, fortunately, as our pets right. are, you know, getting older and older. Yeah. And I, and you know what, I think, I think a lot of it is, and I'm excited to see it. I feel like a lot of that is client driven. Clients are looking, they're looking for what they can do. That's going to be in the best interest of their pet. They're, they're looking for things that they can do that are going to be helpful. And they're looking to participate in their animal's health care. I have check boxes on my referral form and they're all related to physical problems like loss of range of motion, decreased flexibility, um, diminished strength. I am going to add enrichment as one of the check boxes because one of the doctors, the veterinarians that refers to me quite frequently always has to write that in and other (laughs) because (laughs) she's aware of this and And, you know, and I agree, Kathy, that this is right up our alley in terms of, you know, providing that, that stimulation and, and along with the physical guidance. So, yeah, yeah. I think that'd be great. And also by having it as a designated thing to think about either as, you know, the client coming in or the referring vet, considering what the, the, their patient needs, hopefully it's more likely to be addressed if we don't have those visual reminders. And again, if it's something that's chronic or, um, you know, somewhat subtle, then we're less apt to, to address it. Um, what, what I think again of with people seems very parallel to our pets in that, you know, there are, there are measures that we can take. And the big three that I think of are, you know, socialization, exercise, and brain games, you know, and people, Sudoku, you know, got a lot of (laughs) press, Um, you know, but there are, I think people don't realize 
that chasing a, a treat dispenser around is a brain game for their pet. And, you know, again, doing something physically different. So I know like you're supposed to brush your teeth with your opposite hand because it makes your mind <laughs> think differently. And I end up poking the toothbrush in my eye, but that's a different story. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think as long as to Dr. Riggs point, we don't increase anxiety. We listen to our pets, you know, don't be afraid to, to experiment with these things and try to promote all of those things, you know, the increased bonding, socialization, um, appropriate physical exercise, and the enrichment and mental stimulation. Right. Definitely. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, this has been amazing. This was a great show. Um, I, I think this is going to be really helpful for, um, for, for our listeners. And Dr. Riggs, before we go, um, is there any, anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Any closing remark, any ideas, anything that you'd like to uh, take away for, for owners? Sure. It may be a little bit cheesy, but uh, if old dogs lose their tricks, try teaching them, teaching them new ones. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's, I lo- that's perfect. That's perfect. Exercise that brain muscle. That's, that's we, right. Yeah. And I just always remember that treatment often requires a multimodal approach. So there's no, there's not going to be a, a an easy fix or, you know, a magic pill that's all the, all of a sudden going to bring your pet back. Um, it requires, you know, intervention that, you know, it involves the environment with, you know, your diet with you know, how you interact interact with your pet and, you know, what you can do with exercise. So, you know, don't, don't think of it as just a, a problem that, that should be addressed just with medicine alone. There are a lot of ways we can approach this problem and that should be approached. That's a fantastic takeaway. Uh, Dr. Riggs, for our listeners, can you tell people where they can find you? Yes. So I'm at Massachusetts Veterinary Referral Hospital, which is in Woburn, Massachusetts. And we will be putting, as always, some links with our show notes on the Petability Podcast website um, in terms of, uh, you know, things that you may be able to find, uh, for example, the Thunder shirts, if you think that might help your pet, and certainly the website for uh, Massachusetts Veterinary Referral Hospital. Yeah, and we can probably put up a link for finding some of those really good, um, you know, brain games, too. We'll put up a link for those, too. So my my take-home message, my final... My final words yes. is, yes, you can teach your dog new tricks. Thank you, Dr. Riggs. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Riggs, for joining us. It was great to talk with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at Petability Podcast. For more information about Kathy's books and living with blind dogs, please go to EnableYourPet.com. Thank you, and please tune in next time.